Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone. I'm really excited to talk with Dr. Jen Potter today about a recent body of work by her and her colleagues, Danielle Perry and Jessica Kirkwood, in the Canadian Family Physician Tools for Practice section on February 22nd. So this is hot off the press. So their systemic review, and I'm going to let uh, Dr. Potter explain the work that they did, but primarily explored the evidence for psychological interventions, specifically looking at mindfulness-based stress reduction and cognitive behavioral therapy in the management of chronic low back pain. So what they did is they looked at the evidence that was out there. And it seems, I don't know about you guys, but recently there just seems to be an overabundance of resources that recently regarding psychological interventions for chronic pain. So it is really important for us to explore the evidence. As mentioned, I'll let Dr. Potter explain her work. But what I see psychological interventions as is is a tool in our toolbox. So there's lots to be hopeful as we explore this area. As we said in our previous podcast, we tend to focus more on structural therapies to manage chronic pain. But we really need to expand our toolbox to look at other types of therapies that can have an impact on patients, individual patients' uh, pain and suffering. And it will be very individual specific uh, who will benefit from this therapy. So just a little bit about Dr. Potter before we start. She's a practicing family physician and assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Manitoba. And she participates in clinical and academic teaching as well as research, quality improvement, and faculty development. She's also a member of the peer group that I mentioned. So this is a, an acronym for Patients Experience Evidence and Research Team. So I'm going to let her explain to you what, what this is about and why it's so important for clinicians in the uh, front lines, why this work that these groups are doing is so important. So maybe what I'll get you to do then is describe what peer is so that everybody knows sort of the role of peer and, uh, you know, the vision, the mission, if you can. PEER is a Canadian national group, and what we do is we try to work through the evidence and bring it into sort of a practical sphere for clinicians, so people, and particularly primary care clinicians. So we try to really focus on like very relevant clinical questions, things that we actually see in the office every day. We try to focus on patients, you know, not necessarily things like, you know, surrogate markers and things like that, but what actually matters to patients. We look at evidence and we, we put a lot of emphasis on evidence, but we also, are, I think, are fairly realistic about, you know, patients and patients' experience and uh, what's going to work for people. And so we try to we try to bring a very practical approach to, to translating evidence from, you know, papers and, and publications into, you know, the, the, the office. Yeah. Would that be the same as I always remember reading some really good work um, from a guy out of the States and he was talking about pose and dose. Is that the same thing like patient orientated evidence versus disease orientated evidence? Yeah, I believe it really would be. Okay. Uh, we really definitely try to focus on patients. Things that matter. Yeah. Like, yeah. What, what do patients actually care about? Yeah. You know, rather than having a hemoglobin A1C of a certain number, rather does that impact their overall quality of life? You know, those kinds of things. Yeah. And I mean, if, if, A1C can be tied to outcomes like blindness or, you know, Mm. uh, dialysis or things that really are going to change a patient's life and that patients are going to value, then 
it's a valuable it's a valuable tool. Absolutely. But sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Exactly. But I so I want to come back actually to the psychological interventions. It is so friggin' timely that you guys are doing this stuff. I don't know if you're aware of some of the resources that have come out recently. One particular book by I talk about him in one of our previous podcasts, and I, I have no um, financial connection to anybody. I'm not paid any money to do this podcast. It's just something I do out of interest. Uh, I do a lot of work in in pain in my area. But uh, one of these resources that a patient brought to me, a book written by Alan Gordon, The Way Out. Have Have you heard about that book? I don't know that book. I I, I definitely am familiar with some books, but uh, I don't know that one. Yeah. So it really looks at, at pain reprocessing therapy and sort of brings in some of these psychological interventions. And uh, so what this guy, this guy, I think, is a social worker, and he sort of tries to put it into a context that patients can sort of use it sort of on a regular basis and not really know that there's a label there, right, that it's not mindfulness or acceptance commitment therapy or things like that. So it's it's really interesting. I'm not a psychologist. I don't, I'm not trained as a psychologist, and but it's always fascinated me um, how our brain works. Uh, but this work uh, that you guys are doing, it's, it, it, I mean, the science is also shifting over, especially in around chronic pain, about how important the central nervous system is in the development and maintenance of chronic pain. So what I'm going to get you to do maybe is if you could talk to me about your study and how it was done and what you found. Yeah, so our study was done as part of uh, PEERS chronic pain guideline that's uh, going to be coming out this month. I worked with a team uh, with myself and Jess Kirkwood and Danielle Perry, and we worked together to kind of answer, to really to look at the question about the value of uh, psychological interventions for chronic pain for this guideline. And we did a rapid review of the literature with a focus on particularly chronic low back pain, neuropathic pain, and osteoarthritis. And right now we've been focusing on the chronic uh, low back pain evidence lately. So we did the rapid review of the literature and we sort of dug and looked through things and, and really spent a lot of time, like I say, trying to focus on the patient-oriented outcomes, the things that patients are going to care about and, and that are going to be meaningful for them. And uh, and that was, there were, there were a number of studies, but they didn't necessarily look at the outcomes we wanted to look at. So uh, we tried to we tried to limit our, our, our focus to what was going to make a difference in the office. So what kinds of things did you look at? We focused on two systematic reviews, as well as one umbrella review, and then three randomized control trials on top of that. With those, we really, again, broke, we tried to break them down as specifically as possible to specific interventions, as well as specific patient-oriented outcomes. We really found that there was mostly evidence for cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. and for mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based uh, approaches. Uh, but we didn't really find, even though we looked, we didn't find a lot of evidence for things like acceptance and commitment therapy or other modalities. Uh, so that's really where where we, fo- we put our energy. So can you define what those therapies are, Jen, what sort of characteristics they have so people can understand exactly what we're talking about? Yeah, so a mindfulness-based stress reduction approach, so that would be basically a collection of exercises that are designed to bring a patient's attention to the present moment, not thinking about the past, not thinking about the future, but really what's going on in the here and now with a goal of decreasing arousal and emotional reactivity. So, so the amount of distress that, that uh, is going on. And it's usually done as part of a group, uh, a group program. The second area that we looked at was cognitive behavioral therapy, which is 
primarily, and, and that's something that most of us are, have at least a passing familiarity with, uh, it's used for many, many, many different clinical conditions. And it's really aimed at identifying and correcting distorted perceptions and beliefs. And then there's acceptance and commitment therapy, which has some overlap with both of the above. It tends to focus on accepting thoughts and emotions as they are, uh, looking at one's values and thinking about one's values, and then taking action to embody those values. Again, not something we focused on a lot just because we did not find a lot of studies on it. So is there a difference between mindfulness and mindfulness-based stress reduction? Mindfulness... It Mindfulness, I think, is just a broader term. It's a broader, it's not necessarily focused on stress reduction inherently. Uh, it's more focused on, you know, identifying sort of what's going on right now. Whereas the mindfulness-based stress reduction is focused on taking that sort of connection to the moment and reducing the stress that it's causing. Do you practice these techniques in your clinical practice? Uh, I am not an expert practitioner, uh, yeah. so I don't, I wouldn't do like a, uh, in-depth session, but I will sort of do, for example, I'll do some grounding exercises with very anxious patients. Uh, we'll do a little bit of cognitive identification with uh, with patients in my office. Because I'm not also not a practitioner in these areas. I am actually going to interview uh, one of our psychologists uh, with the Mentorship Network, who hopefully will even even provide more sort of instruction. But for me, when I think about mindfulness, because I think where we can trip up sometimes, like a lot of these things sound like a lot of work and a lot of expertise. And I'm thinking, how can I integrate something like this in clinical practice? And the way I think about mindfulness in particular, the other ones are a little bit more challenging, I find, is that I just think of awareness. Like it's like when you walk outside, rather than kind of get lost in my thoughts, is to listen to the birds right? So being present or trying to practice it in that way. I don't know if that sounds strange. Because once you start to add in things, because when I think about stress reduction, I always think about breathing techniques. And for me, trying to do breathing techniques that help to calm me, I almost feel like I'm hyperventilating sometimes. I don't know if you get that experience. or So some people are very good at these techniques, but I find them really hard to implement for myself, let alone trying to uh, encourage patients to do these. Yeah, and I think um, a lot of times we get tied up in, we're trying to do everything, right? Yeah. We're trying to, you know, achieve stress reduction. And really, it almost is counterproductive in the mindfulness space, where if we could focus on, let's just think about, I will just walked outside, the air on my face is cold. Yeah. I can feel that the sidewalk under my feet is hard, and now I'm walking on the grass, and now it feels softer. You know, things like that. So and, and instead of trying to focus on the goal, which is stress reduction, yeah. focusing more on let's just do the steps. Let's just do the first thing and and just not worry about the results, but just work, worry about the process, uh, mm. at least right off the bat. Yeah. And there's so many cool resources out there. And like I said, I don't get paid by any of them, but even to try and just, uh, you know, I, I'm going to mention one particular thing, uh, Headspace, that all they do is they get you just to breathe and they don't tell you how to do it or what to do. They kind of Put this imagery in there and I do find things like that can be very helpful where there's not too much information coming in at the same time. <laughs> oh Absolutely. Goodness. Yeah so I think what what really stood out for me when I was looking at your paper is when you described that approximately a third of the patients you know 32% for CBT and 30% for mindfully mindful based mindfully based <laughs> mindful based stress reduction found either uh, that their pain was completely gone 
or that they felt much better at 52 weeks. So you were looking at a number needed to treat of one to seven. I mean, that's amazing. When I think about the pain self-management program that I'm involved with here, and it's a multidiscipline clinic, you get attrition from, you know, the number of people that will actually attend, but also as you start to do some of the sessions, by the end of it, probably, a, you know, two-thirds of patients have actually stepped away from from the program, but I thought this was quite interesting. I mean, could you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, these, these numbers came from a research setting, uh, so you definitely have motivated patients uh, enrolling in these studies. Uh, so that, that may be one factor. Could, like pain is just so complicated, right? So, you know, about 30% of people got better with the interventions, but about 20% got better just from the control groups. And so, you know, pain is just, we don't really get it, right? We don't mm. really know exactly how uh, how pain works in the brain. We're just sort of starting to. I think what we're doing, just like with almost everything we do in medicine, we're really just trying to skew the odds of patients getting what they need and what they want, uh, which is you know pain relief in this case. Uh, we're just trying to skew the odds. And it seems that, that the psychological interventions do seem to do that. But again, it doesn't work, you know, for everybody and nothing works for everybody, right? Exactly. They, they have to want to engage in that therapy. But the, but the way I see this, because we've been so focused, I mean, if you think clinically, even though we talk about a biopsychosocial model in terms of how we diagnose and treat pain, we still are in this biomedical model that if somebody has severe pain, there has to be a structural abnormality. And in fact, most of our treatments focus on structural abnormalities. They really don't kind of dive into that biopsychosocial more than it needs to. Some of the work, though, actually, I had mentioned Dr. Hashimi in some of the questions I had sent you. So they've been doing some fascinating stuff, and they're, they're out of Dalhousie. And what they've actually been able to show is that the longer pain is present, so as long as the individual feels that need to protect, we start to see this huge shift in the brain towards more emotive types of processing. And that's the area. So the, the medial prefrontal cortex and the, um, uh, the amygdalas. So we, the, what starts to happen, and it's very similar from what I understand uh, to things that we see with, you know, when we develop fear of flying or fear of heights is that the, the emotive triggers tend to start taking over. So this would make sense around the research that you guys are doing, is that, and these emotive triggers, now they talk about fear, but for a lot of patients, they don't recognize fear. When I asked one patient, you know, so I know fear is not something you think about, but is there some other feeling that you have with your pain that triggers sort of that need to protect? And he said, it's an uneasiness that I get. So the brain will process that as a particular threat because that's the way we're designed to, we're designed to respond. I mean, if our body feels like it's in pain, it's going to respond in a way that there is pain. It doesn't matter if it's real or not. So I think this is why we're starting to see how these therapies hopefully can, can give a lot of promise and, and hope for patients, that we need to start seeing how the patient is processing threat at that unconscious level. So it's, it's kind of interesting looking at some of her work as well. Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. I think one way that we could sort of look at this is that we can see, we can sort of start, maybe not divide things into fear and pain and things like that, but just sort of lump them together under distress. Mm. And whether distress is caused by, you know, yeah. pain or it's caused by it's caused by fear or it's caused by, you know, grief or sadness or whatever it is, ultimately all of those processes are going on in the brain. Yes. And yeah. 
they're going on in the brain rather than, you know, at like, you know, in the back or, you know, in the, you know, the arm or something like that. That's not to say that the pain is, is made up uh, no. because it's a real, it's a, you know, the distress is real. Yeah. Uh, but if we, if we think about in terms of less, you know, how much of this is a, a structural problem and how much it is, is a, a, a way we handle that structural problem or, you know, the way we handle the signals we're getting, then I think we might be able to, to change the thinking a little bit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've heard it described. It's kind of interesting. So, you know, we think about, um, because there's a lot of things that we do every day in healthcare around pain that really confuses patients, especially patients with chronic pain. So I work in a space, uh, I work in an emergency, I'm in a rural practice. That's why it'll seem like I'm doing lots of things, but it's a rural practice. So I work in the emergency room, but I also do pain addiction and palliative care. And when I see patients in the emergency department, our pain scales are completely, they don't work for patients with chronic pain. What patients are trying to do is they're trying to adjust their intensity to fit what we think. I mean, I had a great story of a patient once. She came in and nurse sat, when she triaged her, asked her what her pain intensity was. And she said, well, it's 12 on 10. And and the nurse looked at her and said, you can't go higher than 10. And so she very quickly corrected her number. And I said, that is insane because we're asking patients to describe their intensity or their experience. And then we're telling them that if they don't fit into our model, then there's a problem, right? So many of the tools yeah. we have just don't work well to really explain the intensity of pain that patients are experiencing. And it is it is so real. And uh, the way that I've, I've understood it is mostly around... Uh, uh, neuroplasticity. It's it's faulty wiring. And so that neuroplasticity can adjust in one direction, both it's happening in the brain, but also happening in our peripheral nociceptors. But um, so it can happen, it can go in one direction, and it can come back into another direction. So that's the beauty of sort of being open to adopting techniques that might be able to change how people think about the process and be able to uh, get some semblance of quality of life back, you know. But anyway, the, the whole research area is fascinating. And I think we're in the right direction, honestly. And I've been using a lot of the techniques around pain reprocessing therapy. And I find that our, the numbers of patients that are staying in the clinic are a little bit better. So anyway, we talk about that in previous podcasts. So I do think there's something to it. And I think the patients that are ready to take it on are, are really quite happy to, to see it happen. So the other thing I just wanted to ask, to bring you back to your study, uh, Jen, and I didn't read the papers, actually, that the, the randomized control trials that you used, and I apologize for that. I just didn't get a chance to do it. You talked about the age and gender of patients in the studies. Did you guys look into ethnic groups or um, ethnic diversity in the study? There were no comments on ethnic diversity in the studies, uh, unfortunately. Of the three RCTs that we looked at, one was done in the UK, and I believe the other two were both in the US. And so, you know, beyond that, they really didn't comment on uh, on ethnicity. So one of the things that I often, especially when I come back to, to mindfulness, when I think about some of the, the, the behaviors that we see around, I was just looking at uh, my mother-in-law, you know, in her prayer beads. Like the, to me, that's a form of meditation or mindfulness, or even when you're looking at sweat lodges. So it's just, it has a different name. So one of the questions I sometimes will ask individuals is, what works for you when your brain needs to find that place of calm? Are there particular practices or cultural things that you do? But it would be really interesting to look at these from a study perspective as well, because I do think it's important. Some people would look at you with a concept of mindfulness and say, well, we don't do that in our, in our culture. 
One of the things that comes up all the time, and you probably find this in your clinical work, is that when we start talking about mindfulness or cognitive-based therapy, the patient either will roll their eyes or look at us and say, you think this is all in my head, don't you? How do you respond to that in clinical practice? Yeah, that that really happens all the time um, because patients, a lot of patients with chronic pain have had lots of experiences where their pain has been dismissed or minimized or, you know, they're they're sort of thought of as, you know, drug seeking or something like that. Uh, So yes, a lot of patients will definitely be very sensitive to the idea that, that, you know, you don't believe me or, uh, or you think I'm, I'm, I have, you know, alternate motives here. I think the focus is on empathy empathy and validation. This pain is real, right? And so what I, I usually try to point out to patients is, hey, I do not think you're making this up. I think this pain is real. What we do know is that over time, you know, we ha- you, your brain processes the pain one way when it's first happening, but over time it starts to change in the way it handles this. And so although maybe at the beginning, the signals you were getting maybe were coming from your back, what eventually happens is your brain is now wired, it becomes wired to sort of see these pain signals happening all the time or most of the time. And so, yes, we can do things that, that you know, might help your back, uh, you know, so things like physiotherapy and things like that. But the other side of it is that we might also need to re- or help your brain relearn how to in- interpret and handle these pain signals that it's getting all the time. I think sort of validating pain and and you know being empathetic and, and really um, really recognizing that that this pain is whether it's you know really coming from your back or not like it's a real experience and I've sort of tried to stop asking questions about you know pain scales and and you know how can you quantify this pain for me and focusing more on okay, what are you able to do and focusing on function and then also on, on the distress. So things like, is this causing you a lot of anxiety? Is this, you know, is this triggering, you know, mood symptoms for you, those sorts of things. So, so focusing more on the distress and the distress experience rather than, than, you know, sort of give me a number on a pain scale. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so the other thing that I find uh, can be very helpful is that if you get the patient to tell you, because what, what they do understand is what intensity of pain they have. They may not be able to quantify it, but often if they go, you know, sort of high, moderate to low, and what, why I feel it's important that we were able to kind of quantify it in that way is that when that intensity is super high, we really, it's just like a high anxiety state, eh, Jen, in, in the sense that patients are only taking in so much information. And in fact, they feel so much danger in their body. They're probably not processing a lot of things that we're saying to them. So this is where they need to focus on those calming techniques to get their pain intensity down. And when they get to that moderate to low, that's when we can start introducing things. So what I've started doing, even in the pain self-management group, is I tell patients to check in with their pain. If they're really feeling a lot of intensity, it's okay for them to do whatever they need to do to help calm their pain. And to be able to not feel that they have to participate in some of the activities that we do. Now, most of our our sessions now are are done by Zoom, actually. So it works out well for a lot of patients because they're in their own space, right? But the other, the other technique that I use, because uh, I get this all the time in the emerge, and oftentimes, when, so when I'm in different environments, it's really interesting. So the chronic pain clinic, people are in moderate to low pain. Like they're coming because they're motivated. They're really wanting to talk about their pain. But when they're coming to the emergency room, they're in t- it's, a, it's a high intensity space anyway, even if we're not seeing high intensity things. But their intensity of pain is so high that you have to 
make sure first that there's nothing new happening in their tissue. So nothing new. So you've got to kind of have a sense of, you know, making sure that we're examining them and doing what we need to do to make sure that nothing new is happening. But generally, they're not processing a lot of information in that space. So that's one of the things I've started to learn, because I used to feel I'd see somebody with chronic pain in the pain or in the emergency room, and I think, oh, my gosh, we want to get them to the pain clinic, and we want to be able to offer them treatment. They don't want any of that. (laughs) They just want someone to tell them that they're okay, right? They're feeling so much danger in their body that uh, they just need to be reassured that nothing dangerous or bad is happening in their body, right? So it's been really interesting for me to realize that, hey, this really does matter in terms of the spaces and how I approach patients. Yeah, and and the patient experience matters just so much. Like It's affected so deeply on how how they perceive they're being perceived. So if they're being if they're being perceived as, you know, they need this is painful and they need help, that goes a long way towards starting the process as opposed to if they they feel like, you know, people aren't really accepting that this is just how much distress they're in. Yeah, I mean they can't you are it's unnatural for our brain to not believe that pain this severe cannot be caused by a structural problem. It's just unnatural. Yeah, and, and yeah, so it's, it's really hard absolutely. for patients to kind of wrap their head around that. And it's uh, the other thing that I use that sometimes helps. So uh, I just had a case here recently, a, a young woman who came in with severe belly pain, and we were just trying to figure it out. And uh, she, she actually was, because I, I find a lot of these techniques work really well, even for structure, patients that are coming in with acute pain, but we're still not able to find a, a reason for their pain. And uh, so uh, came in with some severe belly pain. And, and just got worked up um, considerably. And still we couldn't find a reason and all of her indices and everything. So she said, do you think this is all in my head? And I looked at her and I said, are you having pain? And she said, yes. I said, then it's not in your head. It's real. What I can tell you is that it's not dangerous or bad. It doesn't mean it's not real. So why our body feels that need to protect us at that point, it's, diff- it's, it's different for everybody. So we just need to help patients work through that. The other thing that I just wanted to talk to you about, uh, Jen, because I don't know what your resources are like in in the Winnipeg area with respect to uh, mental health uh, and addiction resources. Do you have access to supports for patients to develop some of these techniques or to use some of these techniques, or is it all sort of clinic-based in your office? Um, We do have resources, and and particularly in my clinic, which happens to be like a multidisciplinary clinic by design, um, that is very helpful. It's really, uh, it is challenging to ex- access these resources because they are limited and, and COVID has made everything more difficult and increased wait lists and everything. I think as a practitioner, I'll, I'll do some of the basics in my office in a clinic, but I really find that the expertise of our psychologists and our, our pain team and, and our pain clinic is really, really critical. Yeah, absolutely. Do you uh, do you have access? Yeah. Oh, it's it's just well, we we did have a psychologist as part of our chronic pain team, but uh, unfortunately, we uh, she she had to leave the practice, and uh, so we haven't been able to recruit another one. And I'll tell you, we really miss uh, having that aspect of um, of that support. Do you know of any programs that clinicians can uh, access that they can learn some of these techniques? I hesitate to sort of tell people to go here or go there because I, I don't I don't have the expertise to, to say 
you know, any of these are particularly valid or good. I mean, when I look at some of the, um, like I said, the, the this particular book by Alan Gordon, for me, I always try and read things before I recommend them to patients, but it was actually a patient who recommended it to me. So that was kind of interesting. <laughs> so I yeah. re- read it and I was like, wow, these techniques are really interesting because they were very simple. They made them very, very simple. And it was really about helping patients uh, separate out their structural structural pain from what they call neuroplastic pain or chronic pain. So often patients, it's, it's quite amazing to me, one of the questions I love to ask patients is tell me when your pain, when pain became persistent for you in your life. And you know, you could be sitting there with an 82 year old and they'll take you back to when they were six and fell out of the loft of a hay, hay burn and uh, broke their femur. And to this day, they still feel that that's why they have persistent pain because of that injury, even though it had been healed. So trying to help them separate out that structural pain and that journey, is just like the, when we're using concept of degenerative disc disease or degenerative arthritis, these are structural features of everybody, but generally are not the cause of neuroplastic pain. They can cause structural problems, but generally the neuroplastic pain piece is a separate entity. And so helping them separate them out sometimes can help them start to recognize, okay, how much of this is structural? How much of these are the normal structural triggers that we get when, you know, when we stand up from a chair, you know, and and things hurt versus my neuroplastic or my chronic pain. And then trying to bring in these messages of safety and reassurance. And uh, so the the techniques are really simple. He does use some mindfulness as well as some acceptance commitment therapy. But, you know, after talking with you, obviously the, the evidence isn't there so much around the acceptance commitment therapy. But I don't know if you've had an opportunity. There's a really good paper that really helps to summarize these two that I often recommend. It's uh, by Mark Lumley. I'll put it actually in the notes, uh, a link. But it's a, it's sort of a, an int- he basically it's an integrative assessment and treatment model. It's a psychological therapies for centralized pain. And he does a beautiful, these guys do a beautiful job in summarizing them and brings in this whole concept around pain reprocessing therapy and how to use some of these techniques. And I think this is this guy's book is really based off that. But uh, I'll, I'll definitely put a link, uh, link in the notes around that because I do think it's a great resource for clinicians just to kind of read it and say, wow, this is kind of cool. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that, but I am familiar. The one book that I know about is Explain Pain. Yes, um, which is yeah. by Butler and Mosley. And that is a book that I've used in my office um, sort of to, to recommend to patients um, who are, who are you know, looking to understand what's going on at, you know, more than just, you know, sort of a, um, a soundbite kind of level. But, but really, if they're looking to sort of dig into it, um, this is a book that I've, I've suggested to people. It was actually recommended to me by one of our pain clinic occupational therapists. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've found it valuable. Yeah, it's got, that's the one with the funky pictures? It is. Yeah. <laughs> very, there's very neat inter- art in it. I know. And there's an interesting story around that that I won't share with you. But uh, yeah, those guys have done, that was one of the very first books I got exposed to when I yeah. went, wow, this is pretty cool. Anyway, I think it any is. way that we can help to understand it ourselves, I mean, because obviously what we want to do is to see patients get back to a functional quality of life. I mean, chronic pain is a devastating illness. And actually, I'll just share with you, uh, just recently, we we actually had a patient who, you know, I had known for a long, long time. And it just was really sad. I mean, she was, she actually had requested MAID uh, because of the significance of her suffering. And she actually qualified, which was 
I found it very hard because when I think about some of the evidence that's coming forward, I'm thinking, wow, I, I would I wouldn't I mean to feel that hopeless and to feel that there was no hope. I, I just thought, found that really sad. But it's just understanding how impactful this disease is for patients. And it is recognized now by the World Health Organization as a very distinct disease. I mean, it in its ICD-11 classification has finally given chronic pain the diagnosis and the attention that it needs. So I, I just think it's, um, it is important for us to uh, to get ourselves as knowledgeable as possible and to be able to reach into some of these resources, so hopefully to ha- impact people's lives. That's a pretty profound uh, it, statement on, on that patient's level of distress. Yeah, it broke my heart. And I, I remember uh, sitting with her and, you know, obviously everybody's lives ha- have some complexity and she had lots of complexity, but to to for her to be at that point in her life um, uh, and to be feeling that way and to have gone through multiple different assessments it just made me pause, honestly, because I I don't think we understand how life-threatening chronic pain can be for some patients. This was obviously her decision, and she was supported by the MAID team, but it really made me stop and pause for sure. So listen, I, I'm just going to, I'm not going to hold you up anymore, Jen, because I know you've uh, probably got lots to do today. I'm, the other thing that I was really curious about is... Because I think the the thing about these therapies, we often thought think in medicine, you know, what's the risk, what's the benefit? And that's the way I kind of think uh, about things that we're introducing. Did you guys look at number needed to hurt harm uh, in terms of the ben- the risk? We didn't, and that was because there were no adverse events reported in uh, in any of the studies. Not all of the studies reported it, but when they did, they they reported no adverse events. Uh, related to the psychological therapy. Um, I, I agree with you. I'm definitely, and, and with peer, we tend to be very, very mindful of not just benefits, but also harms and costs. And uh, and so we were we were looking for that as well, but it just wasn't in the in the papers. Yeah, I think the, the I, I mean, I would feel that the if the patient is motivated and interested in the therapy, that the harms would be fairly low. That that would be an assumption on my part, but because I think about all the things uh, that we do to patients, looking at you know number needed to treat, especially in chronic. I mean, the uh, tools that we have to manage chronic pain have really been discouraging. Uh, to say the least, especially around the pharmacotherapy. And I don't think um, we we really sort of, I mean, patients will often come or individuals will come in hoping that this will be something that will help to, you know, switch this, uh, this mechanism off. But often patients get more side effects than benefits from a lot of the treatments that we use to manage chronic pain. And uh, so these therapies, I think, in, in the context of all the other therapies that we use, I think would re- be relatively more beneficial than harmful. But that's just an assumption that, uh, that I'm making, obviously. I don't think the evidence is really robust, but the what evidence there is is would line up with that, with with it being a quite a safe uh, a safe um, safe intervention as long as the patient, like you say, is motivated because it is a time commitment, and it is often there is often a cost depending on where patients are uh, associated with it. Exactly, yeah, especially financial, and and for us in Nova Scotia, accessing some of these uh, programs is really difficult. I mean, you're looking at, you know, they can self-refer, but you're looking at months and months before they can actually access a consultant, which is really disappointing. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's similar to Manitoba. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll get there. All right, yeah. so anything else you want to add, Jen? I think I would just sort of say, um, I mean, we have lots of traditional pain control modalities that we've worked with and we've had some success with over the years, but they're not perfect. 
And I think that's because pain is just very, very complicated. And I think we're only beginning to sort of understand how it really happens and, and what's really going on, uh, like neurologically. And so as a result, I think, you know, we, we want to look at the evidence and we want to focus on the things that work as best as we can. But I think really sort of taking a patient-centered approach, uh, trying to avoid and reduce harm with the modalities that we, we use, and, um, and really sort of taking whatever modalities and multiple modalities um, that, you know, are, that the patient sees as valuable and doable, uh, I think is probably our best bet right now. You just reminded me of something, actually, just in terms of the tools that you mentioned, because I think it's important just to meant to talk about those, because um, they are actually pretty cool. And I actually use so this would be the uh, pain calculator and the decision aids. I actually use those tools in the pain self management. Maybe you could just talk briefly about those, Jen. Yeah, so um, there's a couple of tools uh, that Peer puts out. Um, one is pain-calculator.com. And so if you look at that, uh, what it does is it, it looks at different um, areas of pain. So low back pain, neuropathic pain, osteoarthritis pain. And then it kind of gives you like a visual tool to use with patients to say, okay, if we use exercise, this is the benefit you can expect. If we use NSAIDs, this is the kind of benefit we expect. If we look at opioids, this is the kind of benefit we expect. And it and it's got all the happy faces. And I find that yeah. happy faces tend to make things make more sense. Exactly. <laughs> They're great. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the other thing is, is that Peer uh, is going to be publishing our new chronic pain guideline, and it's going to come out this month in Canadian Family Physician. Oh, and uh, there's some... Yeah. Um, there's going to be links to, to resources in that uh, guideline as well. Oh, that's wonderful, actually. Can I just clarify too, Jen, when you talk about, and I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but when you're talking about osteoarthritis, are we talking inflammatory arthritis or degenerative disease? It's uh, it's focusing uh, on osteoarthritis, so, so non-inflammatory. Okay, yeah, because that's, I know the language can be interchangeable between osteo and degenerative disease, so just to clarify it for our listeners. All right. Yep. Thank you so much, Jen. I really appreciate you taking my time and you probably need to go rescue your puppy right now. Well, he likes attention in any case. So. Oh, I know. I know. They're so cute. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.